Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of extended one-to-one interviews with people at the very top of their game. Today I'm delighted to welcome David Putnam, a titan of cinema. He spent 30 years as a film producer, credits including Chariots of Fire, Midnight Express and Bugsy Malone. He's won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, 10 Oscars, and in addition to his 25 BAFTAs, they also gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2006. He retired from film production in 1998 to focus on his charity and public policy work. Since then, he's held several prominent roles, including Deputy Chairman of Channel 4, Founding Chairman of Nesta, and Chancellor of the Open University. He currently chairs Atticus Education, a company that produces interactive seminars on film for students around the world. David was awarded a CBE in 1982, a knighthood in 1995, and was appointed to the House of Lords in 1997. Lord Putnam, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. If we can start at the beginning, you uh, started as a photographer's agent, is that right? A long time before that. I was um, an unsuccessful student at school, Um, left when I was 16, became a messenger, Uh, went to night school, realised I'd made probably an error, leaving school as early as I had. And uh, was in advertising for the first uh, 10 years of my of my life. Uh, in the late 60s, I knew I wanted to go into the film industry, but I had no capital. It was very clear I needed some. And the world I knew of was the photography world, which was sort of burgeoning at the time. Uh, but there were no agents. So I spent uh, two, almost three years as a photographer's agent, which was very lucrative and profitable, and managed to put together enough capital to uh, go into the movie industry in 1969. But you always wanted to go into the movie industry. Was that always the plan? The yes, I mean, when I say always wanted, I certainly wanted to as a young man. But where I lived in London, it was impossible to get out to the studios. They showed a car, and I certainly didn't have that. Uh, and also, it was—it seemed a very impenetrable business, and it does still to, to this day seem impenetrable to many people. Uh, so I went into advertising as a messenger, and and actually enjoyed that enormously. And the colleagues and people I met in advertising formed the bedrock of the people I then moved into the film industry with. So it was only later, it, was, it, was, it really was later that I realised that film was not something you just couldn't get into. Actually, it was going to see The Graduate, the movie The Graduate, that I came to terms with the fact that making that film was not a million miles away from what we were already doing in advertising. It was just kind of a 90-minute version of the two-minute commercials we were making. Uh, and that was what allowed me the conceit, and it really was a conceit because I had no idea what I was doing, uh, to have a crack at it as being a film producer. Were you ever tempted to stay in the advertising industry or do you think, were you always using that as a kind of means to an end to pay the bills? It's a sort of tough question. It was, you have to understand it was the 1960s and the 1960s were a very, very specific decade in which anything seemed possible. And to be absolutely honest, by 1966, 67, after 10 years, I had a really fabulous job of working for far and away the best agency, I call it Dickinson Pierce. Uh, but I felt I'd done it, you know. I just could, I, I couldn't look ahead and think about the next 10 years, let alone the next 30 years, in advertising. So moving on into something that would look more challenging, oddly, seemed very, very rational and a se- and sensible thing to do. But lots of people get to that kind of senior stage, and they almost feel quite kind of brick-walled in that they've got outgoings, a lifestyle that they need to support, and changing careers so drastically into something that was a bit of a chance at that stage. It's quite risky, isn't it? Did you not feel quite daunted at that point? I think it probably feels more risky now. As I said, you have to put yourself back or get yourself back into the mindset of the 1960s, and it felt a lot less risky. People were chanting their arm left, right and centre and falling in their face. Uh, I don't happen to have ever had those sort of fears. I don't want to say I'm not brave. I'm not you know, pretending I'm some courageous person. But I don't happen to have that kind of fear. I don't suffer from insecurity. And the idea of failing at something is not, not something that ever particularly worried me. 
partly because I knew I was very, very good in advertising. And I always knew that if, God forbid, it all went reels of cotton, I could go back. So the advertising industry was a kind of safety net, even as you started out in film. I suppose so. I didn't think of it that way at the time, but in hindsight, yes. Kind of I, did know, yeah. I did know that um, I had a good name in advertising, I knew a lot of people, and that it would always be a, a role for me. So what were the first steps into film then? How, how did the early years go? Um, rather bumpy, really. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, we, as I said, we didn't really know what we were doing. But um, I, had a friend, I had two friends, Charles Sarchian and Alan Parker, who were in my group in the ad agency. Never heard and, of them. Uh, exactly. And I persuaded <laughs> both of them to write a script. And Charles wrote a script that kind of didn't work. I'm not sure his heart was really in it. I think he probably decided there was a future in advertising. And, um, but Alan's second script, called Melody, which was largely based on the way I'd met my wife at school, uh, worked. And I was able to persuade the Bee Gees, who were just getting hot as a group, to do a score. I was able to snatch the two boys who starred in Oliver um, uh, up as, as this being their next movie. And that was a good enough package to make a reasonably inexpensive film, and that's exactly what happened. That film was successful enough. It wasn't particularly successful, but successful enough to get the second one off the ground. The second one was a catastrophe, but I learned a <laughs> lot. I mean, probably I learned more making this, uh, the second movie that, uh, than all the others put together. And by that time, I was on something of a role. My third film... Uh, that'll be the day which was made as a sort of a, a rock and roll semi-autobiographical movie was hugely successful. And from that point on, things, uh, well, things looked up. It wasn't, it wasn't smooth, but at least it was a consistently year-on-year -year improving situation. Did you ever have a kind of mentor in those early years, someone who'd, who'd been in the industry for 10 or 15 years or whatever and can kind of give you a few rungs up the ladder and a few bits of advice? Um, in one sense, I went into partnership with a, a chap I knew, a friend, uh, called Sandy Leverson, who's still a very, very close friend, uh, who uh, had been an agent with a very large American agency called CMA at the time. And it wasn't so much that he had expertise in filmmaking, but he did have a very good telephone book. Uh, and then through Sandy, I met a lot of people. And he, he, I could never have, I don't think, even thought about entering the industry without him. So we went into partnership. He, uh, at the time, was already making a film called Performance. So he had the phone book, he had the, made the inroads into the business, and I was able, to an extent, to ride on his coattails. And do you think, um, I mean, I know it's easy to say, but do you think uh, it would have been much more difficult had you not had that early assistance, that early partnership? Probably, probably. Um, it, didn't, it didn't feel like that at the time. It felt like this was as much a thing that worked for Sandy as it did for me. Mm. I had cash flow. So I had a business that was throwing off cash, the, the photographer's agency, and, and keeping us afloat. He had these relationships and contacts. I had an office, in a very nice office, in Tilney Street in Mayfair. So the, the, it was a relationship that worked very well for both of us. Many people, though, outside the industry, normal film goers, don't really understand the role of producer. Presumably you already knew roughly what a producer did as you started to go into it, or did you still feel that there was lots, of, lots to learn as you, as you started out? There was a huge amount to learn. Uh, I think the two really important uh, features of that is I didn't have any particular desire, and I never ever did develop the desire, to direct a lot of producers are, to an extent, frustrated directors, and that's a, that's a problem. Uh, the other thing was that my job in advertising, as an eventually was a group head, was dealing with the egos and clashes and ambitions and, uh, and, and depressions of very, very good creative people. So I, I had a lot of confidence in my ability to work with what we now term creatives and to help them do their best work. Uh, and I think, again, in hindsight, that that was probably one of the strengths that I brought to the job of producing. 
mean, it's very difficult in some instances to to work with creatives. Are they all, as you would imagine, the stereotype is then, whether it be in film or in um, in advertising? And how do you spot talent as well? For example, you gave Ridley Scott his his first uh, film, as it were. How did it? What was it that you saw in him? You, if you're kind of alert and awake, you know it when you see it. You know, uh, I've never had a problem um, spotting people who I thought had talent. I haven't incidentally haven't always been right. There have been several occasions when I think maybe I overestimated the, uh, the the ability of, a, of an individual, be it a writer or a director or, or anyone else, so yeah, actor, actress. So you're not always right. I kind of want to get this across. I don't think I'm an arrogant person. In fact, I'm, I mm. work very hard not to be. But I think I'm quite a self-confident person. Therefore, I really do believe in my own taste. I think I've got quite commercial taste. I'm not, a, I'm not an aesthete. Uh, I don't have ref- particularly refined taste. I've got, I think I've got good, solid, middle-class, middle-ground taste. And I've always believed in that and, and, and in myself. So when I, when I see a piece of work that I think is terrific, let's say a direct piece of directing that I think is terrific, and I know that that, that talent can be applied to something that I want to do, and it's, in this respect I'm slightly selfish, yeah, I don't really have that much of a hesitation in taking a shot, although I'm cautious. I mean, for example, I was looking the other day, the choice of director on The Killing Fields, it took me a year of looking at people and looking at film and thinking and walking in the park and mulling to... Um, make the decision to approach and work with uh, Roland Joffe, who'd never done a film before. So uh, it's part self-confidence, part opportunism, part luck. Well, like when you chose Roland then, I mean, there, there must have been some kind of kind of existential angst, as it were, because it's an incredible risk, isn't it, you, you know, commercially and critically, that if you'd have got that wrong and it would have been a, a stinker, that uh, could have ruined your career. Well, and, od- and isn't that always the same? You're only ever as good as your last job, in a sense. Oddly... Only in hindsight does it feel that way. I mean, I, I now joke with people that, uh, you know, when uh, I'd spent quite a long time raising the money for Alan Parker to do Bugsy Malone, mm. uh, and they were some of the shortest meetings I've had in my life, which you go and see people say, I'm going to do, want to do this gangster movie, and it's got music by Paul Williams. They're very interested. Until you said, that, but all the cast are going to be 12 years old. And great film, quick, by the way, I have to say. Sorry to come film. across as a fan, but it is. No, it is a great film. Hugely enjoyable. So I was you know, then quickly shown the door. So then we, <laughs> these were, a lot of these were very, very short meetings. Short now, because you were told to get lost. I was told to right? uh, get lost, or it's bonkers. <laughs> but um, interestingly, if you're really honest with yourself and you look at Bugsy and try to imagine the not very good version, I'm not about a bad version, mm. the not very good version of Bugsy, you realise what a very, very you know, high wire act it was, what a fine line we were we were. We were walking in terms of the, the, the version that works wonderfully well and the version that might not have worked. Now, similarly with Roland, it didn't feel like a big risk at the time because I'd done so much homework. I'd seen a, some work he'd done. One particular scene that had knocked me out, which was a, an argument between a couple in a, in a play uh, that was so real, so frightening, actually, that uh, I, I, almost, I almost frightened watching the, uh, watching the TV screen. That combined with the fact that he seemed to be a responsible person. I liked him. I really liked I liked his company. But most important of all, I, I talked to him about a, a film, that, a script that he wanted to do. It was called The Burston School Strike, from memory. And in truth, I didn't really want to do it. It wasn't a bad script, but I didn't want to do it. But I, I kept the conversation going with him and then quite casually said to him once when he was leaving, wouldn't do me a favour, would, would you read this for me? And he said, yeah, sure. So I gave him a copy of the, a very early draft of a Bruce Robinson's script for The Killing Fields. And he wrote back literally a couple of days later, I said, I've, I've read that script, and uh, I've got to tell you, I think it's the best thing I've ever read. And, and these, here's the emotions, here's what I thought about it. And that letter, now whether Roland knew <laughs> that by writing that he was kind of auditioning, I don't know. Mm. But the truth was that his letter 
unlocked all sorts of concerns that I'd had. And so I had the incredible confidence of knowing that the, the, the guy I was approaching, talking to very casually, but talking to, really understood the project as well, or maybe better than I did. To what extent is things like this chance, as it were? Because when I look back on my career, I mean, I'm only 40, or nearly 40, I should say, but um, all the big breaks I've had have been half chance. I happened to meet someone at an event, but it was me that got up early and went to that event. You kind of make yourself be lucky, but it, that, that person I met that led on to a really good project may or may not have been there. And to what extent is, is luck a part of, of what you do? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think to a, to a very great extent, you do make your own luck. My son's a composer. He's a very, very good composer. And he had a, an album uh, came out a month ago, which is completely wonderful, called Putnam, plays Putnam, slightly embarrassing, but it's his take on scores of uh, a dozen of my movies. He's quite a lonesome guy, you know, and he lives near us in, in West Cork. And every now and I have to say to him, you know, I know actually you do like being alone and being a composer, it, it's a necessary condition. But you also do have to go out and about and meet people, and he's actually quite, when he does do that, he's quite gregarious, he's a very attractive man. Mm. Um, but left to his own devices, you know, prizing him out of the house wouldn't be easy. But I think you you put your finger on something very important. You do, to an extent, make your luck. And here's a little story. When I was trying to get my first film off the ground, uh, and not knowing very much at all, and, and Alan Parker and I have, I've, I've joked about this, it's absolutely true, I had to go out and steal a script from an, an, a, a theatrical agency so that we could type Alan's script up so that it looked like a script. We actually didn't know what the script looked like. And we were, we were damn sure that if our script didn't look like a script, we wouldn't be taken very seriously. So that's how naive we were. But there's a boldness that comes with that naivety, isn't there? Yeah. Because uh, you, the more you get involved in the industry and you speak to some older hands, sometimes they're, they're kind of slightly jaded and say, oh, that wouldn't work, you never, you shouldn't even try this. And it's uh, those people that are bold that do it anyway often get uh, away with it. I couldn't agree more. And in fact, we'll come on to that in a second, which is when it's time to go. But um, I used to go, I printed off dozens and dozens and dozens of copies of the script. On, on every Friday evening, I remember I used to literally work out who might possibly be interested in, in funding a, a movie. And I had no idea how many of these could sent, I sent out, but certainly a hundred, certainly a hundred. And I remember carrying as many as I could to the post, the, the pillar box at the corner of the road on a Friday evening and pushing them one after another, you know, lick the stamps, push them into the letterbox. And I remember consciously saying to myself, you know, what I'm doing here is playing the odds. On the law of averages, someone somewhere is going to open one of these envelopes and read this damn thing and mm. maybe like it. And that's exactly what happened. You've got to kiss enough the frogs, haven't you? Because one of them will turn into a prince, as it uh, were. In a sense, yes, it's a nice way of putting it. I mean, it was just that precisely that happened. It ended up in the hall, on the hall table of an extremely wealthy man in New York. It was read by his son, 15-year-old son, who loved it and told his dad that he thought he should invest in it. And the father, in a moment of weakness, actually it turned out not to be a moment of weakness because the film did all right decided to do just that. And that's how I raised two-thirds of the money for the first film I ever made. Pure, I'd love to say it's tenacity. It's not that. It is literally, literally trying to make the odds work for you. I'll give you a simple example. If you flip a coin and you want it to be heads and it comes down tails, what's the first thing you say is, why don't we do best of three? You right? do indeed, yes. Because all you're doing is improving. You know you've lost, so yeah. you're just improving your chances of maybe winning. Absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's kind of that to the power of ten. Yes, or, or having an even more sound defeat. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the problem. So in, in the early years, was that the major challenge? Was it always chasing finance, as it was? And is that a big big part of being a producer anyway? Does it's, it all boil down to the money? It's, I wouldn't say it all comes down to the money because you've got the, 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 the whole process of actually delivering on what you, you know, what you suggested you'd like to do. Mm. But yes, a huge portion of it's down to the money, down to the money and that can be the most dispiriting aspect of it um, because it often doesn't necessarily relate to the quality of, what, of the film you're trying to make. And also, 
you come under enormous pressure to make compromises which in your heart of hearts you suspect will actually destroy the purpose or the intention of the movie. If you could go back in time to when you started out and said, here's a couple of things that you, you should best avoid or something that you want, you know, buy shares in Apple, what advice would you give the, the young you? Young me? I don't think... I mean, I obviously wasted a lot of time. If I could go back nine-tenths of all the lunches I ever went to or took people to were ended up being a waste of time. You don't know which but you nine. Don't know you don't, you don't know, I have you the same problem. You don't know which nine. Yeah. There's a famous line from a man called Albert Lasker who was... Um, the head of the first really big uh, advertising agency, a company called Lord & Thomas, where um, he was talking to the boss of Unilever, his biggest client. The boss of Unilever said, I've got a nasty feeling, Albert, that uh, I'm wasting half of the money I'm spending on advertising. <laughs> and Lasker said, well, if you can tell me which half, I'll stop. Mm. Uh, and I think it is, it's a bit like that. So I don't have any regrets about the amount of energy. I poured a lot of energy into uh, my early career. I mean, really almost insane. Um, but I don't, there's no point in jogging backwards. You know, sometimes I talk, I talk to my kids. I wonder if I was as, as I, I certainly wasn't as good a dad, for example, as my son and my daughter have been parents. Uh, not nearly as present. But on the other hand, I came from a, an era that wasn't, just wasn't. We, you know, we were absent. Yeah. If I relived my life, there are, there, are, there are times I'd probably spend more time at home. There are trips I wouldn't have gone on. There are people I wouldn't have had a meal with. But as I say, it's very, very difficult to know which, which of them uh, were right, which of them were wrong. And who knows, if I'd been more kind of discerning, I might just have missed one of the very big breaks in my life. Absolutely. Well, I feel the same because we've kind of, you know, you're infinitely more successful, but we've we kind of both picked ourselves up by our own bootstraps, as it were, and that takes an incredible amount of energy. It's almost like, you know, if, if you have a big boulder, all of the energy is actually to get it to start moving. Once it's moving, it's quite easy, but it does take much more energy than you realise. What's quite interesting in the... Met my wife. We've been married fifty-three years. I met her when she was school. Congratulations! Thank you. She was thirteen when I met her, and we got married when she was seventeen. And I asked, we were talking about this the other day, and she said that there was no point in our life where she ever doubted that things would work out fine. And I, you know, I wish I could say I felt that. I had some real dark nights of the soul, mm. but I think subliminally, the fact that she always believed probably really did help keep me going. Clearly, your career's been a, a, an adventure, really. And I think you can only really do that if, you, if you're in charge of your own destiny. Would you agree? Yes, I would. I mean, you do have hairy moments. So just two immediately come to mind, on, both on Chariots of Fire. There was a call I was waiting for that was kind of going to seal or not the other half the money. I had half the money, the other half the money. And I remember staring out of the window of the uh, house we had in, in, in Queenscape Place Mews and knowing very well that if that call didn't come in, I'd already remortgaged the house once, that we'd actually have to sell the house. I mean, that, that I had no doubt at all that that was likely to happen. And that's a kind of real moment. And what I remember, because mm. it was night time, and I was staring at it, I remember I could see my own reflection in the in the glass and thinking, oh, are you nuts? That was one. The other was extraordinary. Was um, We had no money to do the Olympic Games sequences. And um, the only way we could do them was by offering a car and a motorbike uh, on a bank holiday Monday in, in Birkenhead at this stadium that we'd, we'd rented. And we knew we needed 7,000 people and we couldn't pay them. But we'd, we'd created this auction and we'd advertised it in the local paper. And we had no control of the... It was only the one day we could do it and we had no control over the weather. Woke up that morning, it was overcast, but it wasn't raining, thank God. And I remember standing with the location manager, that very nice man indeed called Simon Bosenke, looking down the road at the station that, that if we were going to get a crowd, it had to come down that road. And uh, they were due to be there at nine. 
and at quarter to nine there were just a dribble of people coming in oh, God. Uh, and I just was dying I don't, again no, no, no safety net no plan B mm. and at five to nine I looked down and suddenly there was an odd thing it was like a black line across the road and slowly that emerged as being people and literally at, between five to nine and nine o'clock 6,800 people turned up never quite got 7,000 Incredible, uh, but that, and that the was darkest a, hour before the dawn and all that. That was extraordinary. It was absolutely extraordinary. I remember Simon and I looking at each other. I kind of couldn't believe it because I guess at 10 to 9, I was, as I said, we didn't have a plan B. I don't know what we would have done. Retired to the pub or something and I just drowned so. your sorrows. I think so. <laughs> what advice would you give to young people starting in the industry now? Would you tell them not to bother? Or? No, far from it. I think it's easier to, in, in many respects, get into the industry now than it uh, has ever been. One of the reasons being that you don't have these enormous cost barriers. For example, you know, in order to make anything, and when I say anything, I mean even the most humble little movie, the biggest single cost was stock and processing, your film stock and your film processing. Mm. And uh, if you couldn't stomp up for that, you weren't going to put, put the film through a camera. Then you had to rental the camera and everything else. Today, with a small camera and a memory card, you can make something and you can get actors to act in front of you or you can have an idea and illustrate that idea or it can be stop motion or whatever it is. And you can then upload that onto YouTube. So we actually, you actually can prove to people you know, that you exist talented. and you have talent. That opportunity did not in any way exist at all. Uh, one of the reasons that we, all of us, gravitated into making um, TV commercials. I actually never was in commercials because I was always in the, in the ad agency. But one of the reasons we grabbed hold of TV commercials was it was our way of getting someone else to pay mm. to put film through a camera and to demonstrate that we had maybe, maybe some talent. Do you, I mean, these young people are shooting things and uploading them to YouTube. Do you get bombarded with lots of people contacting you speculatively with showreels and things? How, you know, not anymore. how does that work? Not anymore. I, I, when I retired in, uh, in, in 1998, I didn't tell anybody. I was actually working in the Department of Education. But, but, but they must know you're a connector and that you can open up a lot of doors. Yeah. Well, it's really, in a sense, my point. Because I didn't tell anybody, I did still get scripts and things and people stopping me. And it was tricky, but I had this job and I was able to say to them, well, you know, it's quite difficult. I'm in the House of Lords now and I've got this job in the Department of Education. So I was able to talk myself out of, away from situations. In, I think, 2000 or maybe two, yeah, about 2000, uh, Tessa Jell, who was the Secretary of State at the time, suggested to me that it was daft, that at some point I had to kind of come clean and... And, and admit Formally, that I was, yeah, that yeah, I declare your and, retirement. Uh, with her help, uh, I arranged a lecture at BAFTA, and I did this BAFTA lecture. And then, with the context within the context lecture, I said, "No, but you know, I've gone by the way up," and that was a relief, huge relief. And you don't went, miss it at all, not in a sense that I think you probably mean it. Not in the sense that you know, would I like to be working on a movie right now? Uh, no, all I miss is every night I see a story. I've just I've just seen one very recently. I see a story, I think, well, someone really needs to bring that to the screen. You know, it's a fantastic, that's just a fantastic story. Or, or people need to know more about that. And those are slightly frustrating moments. I read a, a terrific thing the other day on the Arctic 30. Mm. Uh, just knocked my socks off. And, you know, if it, I'm, I'm looking at something. If, if that is the movie, then nothing is. Uh, because it's a wonderful, wonderful kind of adventure. But it's also a fantastic thing for young people to understand the, the importance of, uh, of activism and believing in something and being prepared to actually go to the wall for the things you believe in, all wrapped up in an adventure. Mm. It's a really, really fine piece. And my, my only frustration is trying to make sure that someone out there who's just good enough and deserves and understands what that story could offer the public. And you're never tempted to make a phone call to one of your friends who is still in the industry and say, have you spotted this? I have done that. 
Uh, I've done that more than once. Yeah. Presumably you can't name some. <laughs> I wouldn't be fair. Wouldn't be of course. Because <laughs> everyone else would call them. No, I do have one or two very active friends who, I've, who I trust totally and know who I have said, uh, have you thought about this or have you looked at that? Just before we move on from that part of your career then, do you have any abiding memories then? When, when you think of that period, what's the first thing that springs to mind? Teamwork. The most beautiful thing about making films is working with a group of people who have a shared vision. It doesn't always happen. Uh, in fact, probably it doesn't happen as often as it ought to. But um, being part of a team that's working on a movie where you actually know that not only is the film worth making, but it's, it's kind of coming out right is and this is a funny word to use, but it's the right word, is a very beautiful thing. You do feel part of something deeply organic and purposeful. It's another nice word. I miss that. I, I miss that. You don't get that in government. In fact, government tends, sadly, uh, to be about individuals and individual ambitions and a lot of sharp elbows. On a movie, everyone knows what their job is. And over a period of time, you begin to develop a, a, you know, a, a group of people you really trust. And and that and at every level, from electricians to to sound engineers to cinematographers, the, the production designers, they're people you trust. And once they know you trust them, and once they begin to to work off and enjoy that sense of trust, as I said, you have something very beautiful. I've never been able to replicate that in the public sphere. This doesn't seem somehow to work. What prompted you move into politics? Because you could have stayed, you know, doing your job as a producer successfully for. Six decades, couldn't you? Or, I suppose so, maybe uh, a bit less. The, theoretically, I, what prompted it was simply that from eighty-seven onwards, I was working within the Labour Party on policy issues. I got more and more interested, and I also got more and more uh, frustrated because I realised how how under-resourced the policy development pro- process was within the you party know, itself. Within the party itself, mm. don't forget this is the this is, this is the era just before think tanks. So mm. um, you know, development of IPPR, development of Demos, those things didn't really exist. They do our thinking for us now, don't they? We've outsourced that. They've got their own Oscars. Yeah. Uh, so it was an it was an early period, and it was. But I found it exciting, and I found it stimulating, and I met some very interesting people. And yes, I did get very sucked into it. The then in ninety seven, absolutely out of the blue, I cannot emphasize this enough. I got a phone call from actually from Jonathan Powell at number ten, who had just won the election, asking if I'd be interested in going to the House of Lords, and. I talked to one or two people and I, I sort of heard myself say, yeah, that'd be interesting. And I think there's a part of me that having committed to something, I don't do things in a very half-hearted way. Mm. Bit of a nutter like that. So having thrown myself into it, I threw myself wholesale into it. I was actually in the process of making a movie at the time and I tried really, really hard to um, double up and do the two. Right, two it horses. Be- it became in- Inevit- absolutely impossible, inevitable. It's just so, so difficult from an energy point of view, isn't it? You just can't dilute it. I was doing 50, both 50. badly initially. I mean, I, mm. I spent some months doing both of them badly. And then the job at the, uh, the Department of Education under under um, David Blunkett uh, became very rewarding. I was given some interesting areas of responsibility. And, you know, I just found myself doing it. But I come back to the original point that the, the tragedy that I watched occurring, it, it, there is something revoltingly Shakespearean about it. Mm. Uh, I mean, isn't, that, seen... isn't that actually what attracts people to it, <laughs> conversely, in some ways? Uh, maybe. Uh, but not you. I would say maybe. <laughs> I'm just listening to, um, at the moment, uh, Alan Johnson's second book, mm. talking about it, and he talks about it very touchingly, and I think Alan is a, a very interesting exception uh, in that... Fantastic politician. I know yeah. Alan myself, and I think he's a great guy. A good guy. He's a good guy. And I don't Genuinely. Think, and I don't think Alan was someone who prepared to stab people in the back to move up to the, to the next lot. You know, I, that's certainly my take on him. 
But there is something Shakespearean about it, and it's ugly. Do you think that the people that are in the system now are products of a, of a fundamentally flawed system? Because I, I worked in that system for 10 years. I was an advisor to a minister and so on, and uh, I was huge ambitious. I stood for Parliament myself in 2005. And, you, uh, you know, you, can't, you have to make sure that you're saying the right things and, and networking with the right people because you've, you've got to get ahead. And there's another 300 people who are desperate for that seat anyway. So the more acceptable you are to the party... Uh, the better. So even though no one tells you to behave a certain way, you almost have to, otherwise you know you're not going to get ahead. For me, it's the system itself is wrong. Well, you know, interesting thing that both Churchill and, who was not lacking ambition, and Clement Attlee had in common, was they both used to use the same phrase in the crisis, which is, trust the people. Mm-hmm. Just trust the people. And I think at a time when people were relatively well-informed, or honestly informed, to the best possible, uh, that was uh, that, that kind of worked. Um, I think we've had several generations of people, of, of um, politicians whose mantra would have been manipulate the people. Mm. And we have to manipulate them because they've been manipulated anyway by a, often a very, very ugly news media that's got its own agenda. It's got the agenda having nothing to do with what actually mm. what's best for possibly each and every person in this country. Churchill um, also famously said, though, that the greatest argument against democracy was a five-minute conversation with the average voter, which always amused me. Well, on the other hand, <laughs> he also argued that if you want to know what's going on, you go into the public bar of a pub and, and listen. So, I, and listen, Churchill, Churchill was able to play both ends against the middle brilliantly, better than certainly better than most people in the, in the 20th century. But I do think that it's this lack of trust, this lack of authenticity. And mm. where I think what I think the abiding tragedy of politics is, is if politicians understood that the best way of forging real deep relationships with the electorate is how authentic they are. Mm-hmm. The ability to apologise, the ability to get things wrong. You know, one of the extraordinary creatures for me is Cameron, who is not a bad man. I'm convinced he's not a bad man. His finest moments have been the unscripted speech you know, to his own party, mm-hmm. which I think was very honest and did him, God knows, no harm at all. But even more importantly... His parliamentary apologies on um, Hillsborough mm. and Bloody Sunday were fantastic. And what I don't understand is why hasn't every single politician learned mm. that you can go, or get on your feet and say sorry and explain. And the sense of relief after the Hillsborough uh, announcement, mm. the sense of relief in, in, in Northern Ireland after the Bloody Sunday announcement is palpable. What lessons did they learn? Why on earth didn't, doesn't that? become a kind of lodestar, which is if we've got a relationship with the electorate, the mm-hmm. electorate actually trusts us, trusts us to say we're sorry when we're wrong and trusts us to be very clear when we convince we're right, that's a relationship. You can't have a relationship that's based on suspecting someone's lying to you all the time. I think the final question I've got on politics really is the government are always repeating the mantra that they've got no money at the moment. Do you think that the creative arts in the UK is suffering because of that, that there's a, a lack of support from the government? And you must see that being in being in the House of Lords as well. It's the uh, it's not a question of lack of support, isn't it? It's it's a question of consistency. The the arts, the creative world generally, and the arts in particular, need a certain level of love. It may sound a bit lovey like, but mm. they do need to know that they are wanted and there is an affection towards them. Because so often what they're doing, we're doing, is it's tough. Uh, it's also risky. Um, my my son appeared last uh, Saturday at the National Concert Hall. And it was watching him on stage playing the piano for an hour and 15 minutes, you know, where you realise what a high wire act it is. Mm. It's scary. And I, when he came to the stage, and it went brilliantly well, he came to the stage, I said, how was it? He said, Dad, as I walked past the, the exit sign as I went on the stage, every instinct, every bone in my body wanted to run through it. And I forced myself onto the stage. 
Politicians don't understand that. They mm. have not a clue of the courage it takes to get, get onto a stage, open your mouth and sing in an opera, or get onto a stage and, and do a piece of Shakespeare to re remembering every line and every move and every stage direction. They don't have a clue. Uh, and I think that maybe if politicians engaged a little more mm. with the arts, they would understand it better. I remember the first time I was ever painted by anybody, uh, a portrait, I'd never appreciated the idea that you've got this white canvas in front of you and you have to decide where to make the first line. You're going to scar this canvas with a colour and a line. Mm. That takes guts. It does. It's incredibly difficult. Real I wouldn't even guts. know how to do it. And it would be a nice thing to feel that we had a generation of politicians that understood the sheer guts it takes to put yourself in a line like that. Final kind of couple of questions, really. What are you up to now? Tell us about a typical working week. Tell us about Atticus and how often do you engage at the Lords? What, what's a typical working week for you now? Um, it's it's more of working, a working fortnight, unfortunately, just the way it works out. Tell us uh, about a typical working fortnight okay. then. <laughs> I, uh, it's just you'll see the rhythm of it. I, I live in West Cork, so I have a four-hour commute home. Uh, I live, I've lived there, for, I bought the house 26 years ago. We lived there very happily. It's where our life is, where our dogs are. It's, it's a wonderful place to live. It's very rural. You, uh, you I, don't commute back every day, surely? Uh, no. Oh, I, was, I was going to say. So <laughs> my, my working week, essentially, is I fly to London on, a, on Monday afternoon. I'm here Monday evening, which normally involves a dinner. I'm then in, in London Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I try and get into the Lords if I possibly can. I go back to Cork on Thursday evening. But every other week, I fly to Dublin. And I do a day in Dublin every other week because I will, I'm also the Irish national digital champion, and I work mm. with the, with the with the government in 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 Ireland. When and I was then, writing your introduction, I had to be careful because there was just so many things you do. Yeah, I thought well, I could well, spend twenty minutes introducing you. And what Atticus is, which is uh, it's it's fantastic, is I had a bad car crash in Italy a few years ago, and I lay feeling sorry for myself in bed, wondering well what I would have done if it been significantly worse. And I read uh, about a system called the Cisco Telepresence System, which was this extraordinarily brilliant video conferencing system. It is clever. I went on the bank, borrowed some money. I installed it in what was our garage. I built a studio, literally a studio in the garage. I now teach at five universities around the world in real time. Incredible. Teaching film and television course uh, to both master's students and uh, undergrads. And I love it. It's actually great. And that's what I do. That's why I don't come into London until Monday afternoon, because mm. I teach Monday mornings and I teach, uh, teach Friday mornings and Friday afternoons. What do you think can be taught and what can't be taught? I teach things like where do stories come from? How do you develop an idea into a script? Even where ideas come from. That's to say that very few ideas are single-sourced single ideas. They tend to be an amalgam of a number of things that interest you, which suddenly form a shape. And I'm able to prove this to my students. Form a shape, and that shape begins to suggest itself as a movie. So that I deal with that. I deal with the role of music in cinema. I'm very, very keen. It's been a huge important part of my life, uh, what the role, the role that music plays in, in, in movies. Uh, the place of casting, and when I say casting, I don't just mean casting actors and actresses, but casting the director, mm. casting the crew, uh, and, and the process you go through of, of that. So what I do is I kind of take the movie industry and over a period of 10 two-hour seminars, dissect it into different component parts, finishing with, uh, the world of distribution and exhibition and how you actually reach the marketplace, how you reach the audience with your film. Not a lot of point in making a film if no one sees it. Mm. So that that's a, a process as well. What's the bit that can't be taught? Because, I, I mean, I've been in PR quite well over a decade and you can kind of tell within an hour or two of someone who's going to succeed because you can learn the mechanics of PR quite easily. You could you could actually, if you talk quickly, you could probably do it in a day. Mm. But you can just tell people they've got that little spark 
um, that are going to succeed. I don't know whether it's a tenacity or a, a keenness, but uh, there's just there's that certain X factor. And I wonder whether that's the same in any industry or whether there's something unique to film where you, where you kind of get a feeling for someone deep down, yeah, they're going to go far. I think it's a, it's a process of engagement. I do know, you know, I've got a class, for example, my class in Australia is master's class, 35 of them. My class in Singapore is a, is an undergraduate class and is about 60. Uh, you know quite quickly which ones are engaged. I mean, particularly in Singapore, because of the, the Oriental culture of Confucian teaching, uh, they find asking questions quite tough. But it's the ones that bust through that and really engage with you and don't just ask one question but ask a follow-up. And you know they've actually got the plot. Um, I'm also very lucky. When I screen clips and things like that for them, I can see them watching them. So I'm actually clever. also aware of how... This technology really is clever, isn't oh, it's, it? Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, so I'm very conscious of, uh, of which ones are seriously engaging with, uh, with, with what I'm doing. So I think a, a lot of it is that passion, feeling you've got something to say. I mean, one, one thing I would say about all of my movies, I always, was always able to describe what the film was attempting to say or what, what issue it was trying to address. Uh, if you don't know that, if, it's, if frankly all you're doing is a shoot up because you think that you might have found an audience, I couldn't do that. I mean, some people can. Uh, it wouldn't interest me. Not that it wouldn't interest me for a few minutes, but it wouldn't see me through the year and a half, two and a half years it takes to make a movie. You mentioned Australia and Singapore and all these different mm. time zones. Isn't that, even though you've, you're in the comfort of your own garage, as it were, surely you know, you, that must be hell on the, uh, on no. the nerves. Uh, all it means is on the Monday morning I tend to get up pretty early. How um, early? <laughs> well, um, I've started as early as, I've, I've started on air as early as seven. Not, I've never wow. started before seven yet. That means getting up at six. That will be in, obviously early evening in Australia when that you is, do that, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, seven is uh, ten hours. Uh, ten is five o'clock in Brisbane. So, final question then: What's your favourite film? My favourite film that, to watch that I've produced would be Local Hero, mm. uh, and it's had an enormous influence on my life, and indeed very much to do with where I live and and the community I live in. A, a lot to do with that. The best achievement, I think, as a filmmaker, probably The Killing Fields. It was the mm. most difficult challenge. Incredible. Film. Very, very difficult film to make. And we, you know, we pulled it off to a remarkable degree. You did. Uh, outside of that, I remember having done Midnight Express and thinking I was pretty hot shit and then going and seeing Raging Bull and just being knocked sideways and realising I knew nothing. I had to start all over again. I've seen Midnight Express once about 20 years ago and I can't ever watch it again. It's just too too raw and too disturbing. It's and tough. It's it's, a, it's don't get me wrong. It's an incredible achievement, but I I, I don't I be, it's not something I would deliberately put on Netflix. Put it that way, and I don't mean that as an insult. The guy told me the other day that he, when he was fifteen, his uh, teacher came in the classroom at a boys' school and said, um, "I've been given two hours to tell you not to take drugs." He said, "I'm not going to do that because I don't think I can influence you one way or another." But what I'm going to say, he said, instead of which, I'm going to turn the lights out and we're going to watch a movie. And he's played fifteen-year-olds. He played uh, Midnight Express. He shouldn't have done because it was an 18. Yes. Uh, and he, he, this guy said to me, he was one of the pupils, he said, there wasn't, he said, the stunned silence. And at the end of it, the teacher said, well, if you haven't got the message now, God help you. He said, I don't think anyone in that classroom ever travelled with anything in their pockets, <laughs> which wow. is uh, interesting. David, it's... Um been an enormous privilege i've learned a huge amount <laughs> so but i think we're going to have to leave it there because uh, you've got a car waiting you've got uh, things to do but uh, thank you ever so much for your time it's been a great privilege and i've really enjoyed it it's a great pleasure paul thanks for having me a big things media production <laughs> big things. <laughs>